Uh, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin or the screen. This is John 16, 16 through 33. We're going through the book of John. Jesus and the disciples have left the Last Supper. They are heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane where he is going to be arrested. And he is sharing a couple of last things with the disciples before he is taken uh, away from them. So let me read that. A little while, Jesus says, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while that you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. The disciples said, Ah! Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you, uh, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, "Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me." I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you are a fan of classic literature or not. One of the books that I have enjoyed uh, was written by Charles Dickens, and it's called Great Expectations. It's a fascinating book about a boy who's named Pip who falls in love with a young lady. There's one problem. He is a common laborer and she is an aristocrat. And so in order to have her, he must become a gentleman. And lo and behold, a mysterious benefactor uh, uh, gives him money so that he can go ahead and go through the process of becoming a gentleman, whatever that means. But over the course of the story, Pip discovers that what he was expecting was not what he wanted at all. Now, we also know the feeling of wrong expectations, don't we? 
we desperately want a job or position and we finally get it and we step into that role and we discover it really wasn't what we were looking for all along. The impression or a thought that we would have when we had that thing is not what we received. Or maybe there's a certain group of friends, a social group that you really want to be a part of. And when you finally are allowed into that inner circle, you discover that it's a different expectation than what you had. See, Jesus knows that his disciples have wrong expectations about who he is and about what the future holds. So in this passage, he wants to explain to them so they will understand when the time comes. It begs the question that we must ask ourselves, do we really have a true understanding of who Jesus is and what we have in him? See, we too must have right expectations about Jesus. For when we see Jesus for who he really is, we can love him for who he truly, truly is, not what we want him to be. And so we're going to look at two wrong expectations that the disciples have and that we can have about Jesus Christ. Number one, the disciples expected a Christ without the cross. And number two, the disciples expected a Christ without the resurrection. So let's look at these two points. The first one, the disciples expected a Christ without the cross. Jesus in verse 16 says to them, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. And we see from here all the way to verse 19, they keep talking about this issue. What does he mean by this? A little while and we're not going to see him, and then we are going to see him. See, they don't have a clue where Jesus is going or what he's going to do. All they know is that they don't want him to go. And I find it very interesting when we get to this point in the Gospels, because as we've gone through the book of John, we've seen that numerous times Jesus has alluded to the fact that he is going to the cross. For instance, in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And of course, we see Peter who steps up and says, this will never, ever happen to you. And Jesus saying to Peter, away from me, Satan. Jesus alluded to what was going to happen to him, and he alluded to the why, the purpose of why it was going to happen numerous times. For even the Son of Man, Jesus said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why didn't they see that this was going to happen? Why didn't they expect it? The reason they didn't expect it, they had wrong expectations, is because in their mind, they didn't need him to go to the cross. The cross was not necessary for them. It's kind of like that blind spot when you're in your car and you look over in the rearview mirror and you can't see the car that's right next to you. See, the disciples mistakenly thought that the problems in life were out there. It was the Romans. It was the religious leaders. It was the unbelievers that didn't believe in Jesus. They were the problem. And the crowds, like the disciples, were the very same, right? They had wrong expectations about Jesus. They wanted him to be a great conquering king. 
And when he refused to play that role, they turned on him. See, they couldn't see the problem, that the problem is in here, in their and our sinful heart. The Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death, and that humanity lives under the condemnation of God. I think of uh, that road to Emmaus. Remember when the disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside of them, and they're all walking together, and Jesus asks, what's been happening? What's going on? And they said, where have you been? Jesus Christ, he, he died, and then some of our women said that he, he, the tomb was empty, and he rose again, and we don't understand what, what, what that's all about. And Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, it's all over the Bible. This reality and this truth that the Son of God would be born and die a death on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. Now, if the disciples couldn't see it, what about you and me? There are many things that we want Jesus to be. Our friend, our provider, our protector. But what about Savior? And if Savior, save me from what? Save me from all that is outside? No, Jesus came to save us from ourselves. See, the problem with you and me and mankind is that we want to be God. Started with Adam and Eve, didn't it? With that fruit in the garden? You will be like God, knowing good from evil, if you walk down this path. And they fell first, headlong into that path. And it goes throughout the scriptures. What about the Tower of Babel when the people come together and let us say, let us build a tower to the sky and we can make a name for ourselves. We can ascend to heaven. We can be like God. Each one of us, whether you are a Christian or not, began as a child of Adam. And in our hearts was the same seed, that same belief that I don't need God that I don't want God, that I can validate my own existence. I'm good enough, smart enough, talented enough, rich enough, pretty enough. It was the philosopher, uh, the nihilist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre that said, better to die on one's feet than live on one's knees. In other words, I don't want to bow my head to God. I'd rather die on my feet. We live in a world that's in open rebellion against God. And the scriptures say that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, if we are a Christian, we might, we should recognize that we are sinners, that we need grace. 
But how do we really live? What is the foundation of our life when push comes to shove? It's either the cross or it's myself. See, if we're honest, a lot of our life, we live with the cross as an add-on, not the basis of our life. We're still living the way that we used to live. And we don't see Jesus for what he really is, our life. And why do we do that? Because we're still radically self-centered. We haven't fully surrendered ourselves to Christ. And so we won't take Jesus for who he truly is, our righteousness. See, that's why for many of us, our Christianity is profoundly disappointing. Why we don't have intimacy with Jesus Christ. Why we don't experience and live in the joy of his forgiveness. Or have peace and resting in his righteousness. See, my friends, Jesus is exactly to you what his cross is. You can't separate them. They are bound together. The cross is the gospel. Christ crucified. 1 John 4, 9 puts it this way, that this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So you see, we have two choices before us. We can receive and rest in the righteousness of Christ. Or we can keep on running, trying to establish our own. It's been a while since I've been in a pet store. Do they still have pet stores? What was the last time you saw a pet store, right? Used to love going in the pet store. And I'd always, you know, you'd hear this sound going. And what's that sound? And you'd go over and there would be uh, the hamster section, right? And you see these hamsters and they're on this little wheel. And they're running and running and running and running. And the faster they go, the more it whirs. But the faster they go, the quicker they get back to where they just were. And you think to yourself, hamster, it's better just to not move. But they keep on running, trying to get to a finish line that they never will see. See, try as we might, we cannot escape the reality that we are not God. And further, there is a curse on us. For the one who sins is the one who dies. You can try to outrun the judgment of God, but you cannot. You're simply running to stand still. But you see, Jesus came to free us from the curse. To give us an off-ramp off the hamster wheel. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The solution, my friends, is the cross. Jesus did for us what we could never do. It says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God not only wants us to recognize the cross, cross, but to rest on it. So what drives your life? The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do I know if the cross is the basis of my life? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. How often do you think of the cross and the righteousness that Jesus Christ provides on a daily basis? Do you think about it during the day all the time? Every now and then? Or never? See, that's your answer. When you have a treasure, you take it out and you look at it. You revel in it. You bask in its beauty. If the cross is the foundation of your life, you will think about it all the time. You will think like Paul who said, indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. And so God is telling you and me to give up on our self-improvement projects, to have one boast, and that boast being the cross of Christ. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You want to be free from chasing the world on that hamster wheel. The off-ramp is right there. It's boasting and basing your life on the cross. For you cannot expect a Christ without the cross. This brings me to my second point, that they expected a Christ without the resurrection. So they not only didn't understand that they wouldn't see him, but they didn't understand that they would see him again. After he was crucified, not one of them expected to have Jesus show up again. Yet Jesus said multiple times in the scriptures that he would rise again. Jesus had to explain to them in this passage when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when that uh, child comes, the anguish leaves and they have joy because the human has been born into the world. In the same way, you will have joy because I will come back to you. And why is the reason they didn't expect the resurrection? Because they didn't expect the need for themselves to be reborn. See, the disciples really got it wrong. First, they didn't think that they were that bad. Second, they didn't realize that they were dead. Kind of like us. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is the story of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus, the one that he loves. And uh, Jesus receives word that Lazarus is dying, and yet he waits until Lazarus dies. And then he comes to Mary and Martha, the sisters, and he says these words 
uh, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he calls Lazarus forth from the grave. Lazarus, come out. And he does. Life meets death and life wins. See, Jesus came back from the grave to call us forth from the grave, to apply the salvation that he earned to each one of us, if you are a Christian, individually. Paul says in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, it was on the cross that Jesus buried our old life, our record of sin, our dead heart, and it was in the resurrection that Jesus Christ rebirthed us into a new person. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the old is gone and the new has come. Jesus came back to give us a new identity, a new heart, and new desire. And in the resurrection, Jesus does three things for us. Number one, he sets us free from the power of sin. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self, that old dead heart, dead man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Some translations say rendered powerless, so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. See, in the resurrected life, we don't have to sin anymore. Sin is no longer our master. Now, I can choose to sin. I can be disobedient, but I don't have to because the power of sin has been broken. Number two, Jesus brings us a new presence and a new power. Jesus said, you will see me again. You will have sorrow, but I will see you again, verse 22, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Jesus is saying that when I come back and I come into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, there will be a new intimacy that you and I have, that I and the Father will live in. And you will ask nothing of me. He means that you will understand who I am and what I have done. Jesus gives us a new presence and a new power. The power of Christ is available to us and accessed through prayer. Look in verse 23 and 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have this picture of 
walking up to the kingdom of God. And the guards are there at the gates with their menacing sword, the angel with the flashing sword, barring entrance to God. And all I have to do is say these words, I come in the name of Jesus. And the guards step aside and I'm granted access to the Father. And all of the resources of God are available to me through prayer, love, patience, faith, discipline. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, in Christ, we too overcome the world. We no longer are enslaved to it. We no longer have to succumb to what the world wants, to live in the identity that it sets for us. And aren't you tired of being chained to the world's expectation? You're a woman. And the world constantly communicates to you what beautiful is and what hoops you have to jump through in order to be recognized as beautiful. But you never, ever, ever can measure up, can you? Because the bar keeps changing. You're a man and the world communicates to you, this is who you have to be to be somebody, to succeed, to accomplish to finally arrive, but you never ever measure up as you wake up every morning and hop on the hamster wheel. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. The resurrection frees us from the power of sin, gives us a new presence and a new power and a new status. Sons and daughters of the Father. I not only come in the name of Jesus, I come now as a child of God. Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In other words, I can go direct to the Father. That He's now not just the father of Jesus, he's my father. For the father himself loves me. Jesus came to reunite us to the father. And the resurrection does so. Now if we are children, Romans 8, 17 says that we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. If I was to ask you, which is the largest organ in your body, what would you say? There's a... 
Some might say the heart, number four. The brain, number three. The liver, number two. Your skin, number one. Your skin makes up about 16% of your body weight. So I'm about 25 pounds worth of skin. Think about that. Isn't that an attractive picture? There are 1.6 trillion cells that make up my skin. But what's fascinating about the skin is every hour I lose 40,000 of them. A million cells every day. In one day, in one year, you'll shed more than eight pounds, half of your skin. But what's amazing is every month, every 27 days, your outer layer of skin is completely shed and regenerated. See, our body is changing from the outside in. But Jesus came to transform us from the inside out. The disciples didn't realize what was going to happen to them. The cross and the resurrection. But we see in the scriptures that they are literally reborn from the inside out. And 50 days later, they go from cowering in the upper room, having denied Christ, to boldly proclaiming him in the exact same place where he was arrested and crucified by the Roman garrison, who is still there. What could make such a change? We were raised from the dead that we too might walk in the newness of life. And so we must. How? And I quote Morpheus of Matrix fame. There is a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. What difference is it if you have a million dollar check and you never go to the bank to cash it? We have to act out of who we are. Colossians 3.1 says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It starts with our heart. Realign your treasure so that you too, like Paul, could say, May I never boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Set your hearts on things above. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If my heart is on things above, then my mind will follow. See, Jesus and the Father, through the Spirit, want to guide us in this new way to live. Through prayer and dependence, we can set our minds on heavenly things, on what Jesus wants. The scriptures say, in view of God's mercy, Romans 12, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's doing. When you set your mind on the leading of the Holy Spirit, you will have wisdom. We must respond to the grace of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or what remains in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That old man is gone, but the flesh remains. That tendency toward independence. That little voice that says, I can do it myself. But the scripture here says that we must take severe measures. We must put to death whatever is earthly in us. Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, it's really simple when you think about it. We just have to daily die. But we're dying to our false identity. So we can live in our true identity. We're putting on the clothes that actually fit. You can choose who you offer yourself, right? Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Jesus is the only master that can truly set us free. Well, I need to wrap up. So I conclude with these thoughts. That in the cross, if you are a Christian, you see the death of the old you. And in the resurrection, there is the life of the new me in Christ. So how do you want to live? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So live in the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. For when we see Jesus for who he really is, we can love him and follow him for who he truly is, not what we want him to be. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross for our sin and you were raised from the dead for our justification. And you have applied to us this new life, this resurrection life, and you've given us a new identity and you've called us to walk in holiness, in obedience to your Holy Spirit. God, let us live this resurrection life. Let us shed off these old clothes that aren't us, that don't fit anymore and that only bring death as we walk daily, moment by moment, in obedience to you, depending and boasting on your cross and resting in your resurrection. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.